I'm rejoicing right now. I know you guys don't care, but <laughs> how's everybody doing tonight? If you live on the north end of town, you got blown here. It's like, what is up with this Santa Ana? Which one of you ascend? I, all right, all of you. And fallen short of the glory of God, I might add. <laughs> God's good, amen. Good to see you all out on a cold, chilly night, but it's warm in here. And we get to worship the Lord and study His Word. What a joy. Turn, if you would, tonight to Acts chapter 18. Tonight, as we begin part six of this series on uh, Paul's mission, as we find him now, he's journeying from Athens. He's going to depart Athens, and he's going to Corinth. And so... To set the stage, as, as Paul's moving around, you can kind of see how the Holy Spirit directed Paul to go to these various different cities that to us in our modern day and time would represent pretty much the whole of the known world. Um, whether that's from philosophy or from intellect, from rule of law and government, from the different types of people that he ministered to, and now we find him writing, in essence, from Corinth, which would have been the most debauched city probably on the face of the earth at the time. You, you might compare it, and I realize that there are wonderful people who love Jesus that live in Las Vegas, but Las Vegas truly is Sin City. They call it themselves Sin City. They, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We all know the reputation of Las Vegas, so it's... Very easy for us to put into a modern context a place like that where, where, you know, very debauched lifestyles are the norm. And so that is where Paul is going to write a couple of his letters. He actually writes this particular, Luke writes part of this book from there. He'll write the letter to the church at Ephesus from there. He obviously writes the two letters that he writes to the church at Corinth from the city of Corinth. And so it's a very important city that he writes from. And so as we find this particular chapter, we, we begin to really kind of get a picture of how God is ministering to all these different types of people. So no one would be able to say, well, you know, the Bible never said anything about this type of lifestyle or that type of people or, you know, the intellectual people, they're okay. You see, God in his marvelous plans... We see the church being spread to some of the places you wouldn't have thought it would ever go. We, we see the church going to places that we obviously would think of, well, you know, that makes some sense. And so the Lord, in his great plan, spreads the gospel uh, to the city of Corinth now, which is a city at the time of probably 200,000 people. That would have made it one of the largest cities in the world probably third behind Rome and Athens, and he has just left Athens. And so you can see God ministering in these very different uh, environments. Last week in Athens, we find the, the seat of philosophy, of Western thought, the rule of law, uh, the home of Plato and Socrates and these great thinkers. And now he moves on to exactly the opposite type of city, uh, a city that's whole focus rather than being on the mind was on the flesh. And so it goes from dealing with people's heads to dealing with uh, their carnality. And so a wonderful, wonderful picture of a cross-section of the world that we live in. And so tonight, chapter 18, and would you pray with me as we seek the face of the Lord in his word. Father God, as we 
stop out of our schedule this week and just take time to meet with you. And Lord, as we come to this 18th chapter and we find the great apostle Paul uh, taking off to a city that, Lord, uh, much like some of our world today, Lord, we, we can think of places on this planet that are given over to the comforts of flesh and carnality, Lord, the sins that so easily beset us, as your word declares. And, Father God, we ask that you would speak to us as we see how Paul faces opposition, Lord, as he goes it alone if he has to and as he calls on friends when he needs to. Lord, we know that you are strong in our weaknesses. And so, God, we pray tonight you'd use this time for your plan for your purpose, for the blessing of your people, for the anointing of our minds, for our instruction, correction. Lord, to know the difference between righteousness and sin. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. little thing for you. There was a couple of boys, and you know we haven't shoveled much snow, so I figured I would give you a snow shoveling analogy to start right off tonight, because it's coming. Snow is coming back. This is running springs. It's actually winter right now. It feels like you move to maybe the Gobi Desert where it gets below zero and yet there's still no rain in sight. But a couple of boys were walking down the road. The man's out in his driveway shoveling snow. And the boys walked up to him and said, Mr., can we shovel your snow? And he says, it's only $2. And the puzzled man replies, says, can't you see I'm doing it myself? And they looked at him and he says, yeah, that's why we asked. We always ask people who are half done because they're ready to quit. (laughs) You see, sometimes ministry can be like that. You kind of get into it, you get involved, you begin to minister. And you guys all know this, even on a personal level. You'll have people that you're sharing with and you begin to get involved in their life. And all of a sudden it gets a whole lot harder than you thought it was going to be. Amen? You know, all of a sudden they, they're, you know, they're not only not interested, they think you're completely insane. And so imagine now Paul is going to a city where he's going to stand out like a sore thumb. Nobody's going to agree with him. Pretty much everybody's going to hate him. He's not going to be liked. He's not going to be loved. Uh, he's going to be castigated. And that's the city of Corinth. Uh, but he's going to go it alone. It's time. It's time that, that I think we realize that sometimes you're going to be discouraged. You're, you're going to have those days when you wake up. Lord, why do you have me doing this? I can tell you as a pastor that happens. I don't know a single person in ministry who hasn't confessed at some point in time to me personally. If I know them personally, yeah, I'm just discouraged. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know why it's going this way. And here the going's going to get very tough. He's going to see some serious opposition in this city. Then he's going to next go to Ephesus, and guess what he's going to find there? Serious opposition in that city. It's not going to be easy. He's kind of had all these mountaintop experiences. The Philippian jailer, that whole scene, that's a mountaintop thing, man, here, and they're singing, and God delivers them, and they get out, and it's it's just all, now it's going to get tough. It's going to get hard. And I want to remind you that in the midst of that, Paul writes really the most direct assault on sin in the New Testament. As he writes the letter to the church at Rome from there as well. He writes the letters to the church at Corinth, probably the second strongest letter. It would be like you getting a cardboard placard and going into, you know, and putting it on there. Anyone who dances in a 
you know, burlesque review is a sinner going to hell and you walk down the strip in Vegas. I mean, that's, you know, that's probably going to get you beat up. It's not going to be good. And Paul's daring enough in the Lord to say, you know what? I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm going to make sure they understand that this is going to cost them if they don't change their ways. And so he begins in verse 1. And then after these things, speaking of his time in Athens, he, he ministers there on the Areopagus, and he's speaking to that council, and he's telling them, you know, here's the unknown God. It's the God who created the heavens and the earth. And he says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews were to depart from Rome. And so Emperor Claudius, one of the more evil emperors uh, to reign over the Roman Empire, uh, we know him for his despicable acts that, in which he tortured both Christians and Jews, now sends them out. And so here's this family who's in essence been displaced. And we're going to find out a little bit about them now. And he came to them. And so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, worked for by the occupation which they were, which was tent makers. And so Paul here showing a little bit of his type of person that he was. And, and I think this is a wonderful place. You know, people often ask, you know, because we have what are, for lack of a better way to understand it, we have professional ministers of the gospel today. People who derive their living from uh, that which is ministry. And we have people who do not. But can I share with you, a vast majority of pastors in the world do not support their families solely with the income they derive from the ministry. Uh, very often it's combined with another job. Very often it's combined with some other form of tent-making skill. And you'll hear, hear people say that I, this is how I make tent or this is what I do for a tent-making skill. This is the place that that's referenced to. Paul is actually working to support himself. He, he's not a full-time minister of the gospel in the professional sense, though he is spending his time ministering the gospel fully. Now, does that mean the pastor shouldn't be paid? Of course that is not what that's saying. But it is saying that it is necessary at times for that pastor to make sure that the gospel goes forth, that he may actually hold down a job in addition to tending to the needs of the flock. And it is a privilege to do so. And so here he says they were also tent makers, so he found some camaraderie with them. And he reasoned in every synagogue, every Sabbath, and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And so did his working for a living keep him from doing what God had called him to do? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, he was going to spread the gospel. He was going to do what God called him to do, even if he had to work and do it. And it's a wonderful picture that we get of the dedication that it takes to really do what God's called you to do. Some have the blessed privilege of simply being, uh, for lack of a better way to, to place it to you, in the ministry as a pastor, and that's all they do. But it is also a blessing to to be able to be a tent maker and to have a profession and to still be able to minister to the flock of God. And so both are acceptable. We have the vision of the other side here in this passage. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, verse 5 tells us, 
Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So he waits until he gets a little bit of help from Silas and Timothy, and then he begins to really tell them what the message is. And that is Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And so as he comes to this city of Corinth, he's ministering uh, to the philosophers in Greece. He, he's telling them about all of these things that are going on. And Paul actually separates himself out because one of the things that was going on during that day and time were people were running around claiming to be prophets of God. And they were normally fleecing the flock. So Paul actually uses the fact that he's working here for a living to distinguish the message that he's bringing from the false religious hucksters of the world. He says, you know what? I'm not in it for the money. I would do this every day, even if I have to work making tent, even if I've got to go out and shear sheep, if I've got to be a goat herder. This is the message. And so he goes and finds a job, and then he shares the gospel of Christ, making his level of commitment known to the people who would see him. He was being different than the rest of the people. Um, Basically, uh, that would have been an anathema to the Jewish culture. Because as far as the Jews were concerned, you needed to be a full-time rabbi in order to have any word to say to anyone. And in fact, it was normally... Uh, the case that they also, at that point in time, earned a living as well, but they also then engaged in full-time ministry. So Paul was kind of keeping everything open so people could look at his life and go, hey, this guy's the real deal. Doesn't have anything to hide. And so he hooks up with a couple of other tent makers, and, and they're kind of a great, they're a really, really wonderful example of people with the gift of hospitality and also uh, a lay minister, someone who comes alongside of somebody who's maybe has a specific gift and begins to work that gift out at that time. And so as Paul, as Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, uh, we're going to find out actually when we read the story in the second letter to the Corinthian church that they actually brought some financial aid to Paul uh, so that Paul could make a few less tents and, and do a little more preaching of the gospel message. Uh, I don't know how much Paul would have accomplished completely by himself in a city like Corinth. I can't even imagine how he would have just, you know, continued to persevere. And so he first meets some lay ministers, and then he goes on uh, to have some of his friends join him. And so it's a wonderful picture of how God can use those times in our lives where maybe we're stretched a little bit, and then at just the right time he brings someone in uh, to help out with that ministry. He begins by bringing the message to them, and he he reminds them uh, that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus uh, were going to suffer persecution. He would actually write those words to his young understudy, Timothy. He says, you know what, it's not easy being in the ministry. Sometimes people think that the ministry is just, you know, uh, I've actually had people, well, you know, I don't even know why pastors get paid. They only work for four hours a week. I've actually had people say that to me. I'm like, really? I didn't notice that in my schedule, but, you know, I guess I guess it could be true if you look at it from a certain perspective. But it is always the people behind the scenes uh, that, that make up a large bulk of what is ministry. Uh, it, it isn't just about what we're doing right now. There's all kinds of things that happen at this church that go on behind the scenes. You know, the coffee did not make itself. The children in the children's ministry are not being taken care of by apparitions. 
you know, the soundboard does not run itself. The CDs do not produce themselves. The website does not get updated by itself. The high schoolers are being taken care of, you know, not by some blow-up person that we put down there. That we It's audio animatronic, and it talks to them. No, it's all people. And so it takes people uh, in ministry. And uh, it's interesting. You know, we, we come to the time in life very often where it boils down to the adversity is going to come. And anybody that hasn't experienced some adversity in their Christian life, uh, wait, it's coming. Because if you've ever done anything for the Lord for an extended period of time, you will eventually run into some adversarial relationships. And Paul certainly is going to have that uh, happen here relatively shortly. And so I want to remind you that as you as you look at this opposition that's going to come up, it, you should expect it. Notice what verse 6 But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your heads. He's he's telling them, you know, there's only one way. And they're going, no, there isn't. No, all roads lead to heaven. You know, much like uh, the syncretism of today. You know, basically every religion kind of teaches the same basic principles, and ultimately they're all just the same. Uh, Scripture doesn't declare that. Scripture is very clear that there is something extremely different about the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ than any other world religion. And so Paul now has come from Athens and intellectualism to absolute carnality. And you can imagine, hey, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And they're going, what? We were thinking the, the temple of Artemis up there on the hill, that was the deal. Oh, by the way, we like that religion a lot better because it involves prostitutes in the, re- the worship up there. What do you got? I have to die to myself? Are you kidding me? You want me to die to myself instead of go visit the temple prostitutes up there at the temple of Diana? No, we're not having any of that. We're keeping what we have already, thank you very much. You can imagine the opposition, because there are probably hundreds of thousands of people in the general region that are all thinking that temple up there is the center of the world. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. Jesus Christ is the center of the world. As a paradigm shift, when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, for I am clean, for now I'll go on to the Gentiles. So he speaks to the Jews in the synagogue, and he says, You guys are hanging out in this carnal city. You're allowing all this stuff to go on underneath your noses, and I'm telling you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way that you can be saved. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, and whose house was next door to the synagogue. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believing on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing, believed and were baptized. So even in the opposition, he's telling these guys, you know what, your blood's on your hands. I've told you the truth. I'm not going to quit. I'm just going to move on until I find somebody who wants to listen. And sometimes you have to do that. People don't always receive the message. As it was in Thessalonica and Berea, there were unbelieving Jews who rejected the word of God and they stirred up trouble for Paul and his friends. And very often that opposition that you face is proof positive you're going the right direction. If you don't irritate somebody every once in a while with the message of the gospel, with the word of God, uh, if you're not afflicting somebody's little gods that they have cut into a niche in in the wall of their house someplace, and of course I'm talking about not the little gods that are carved out of gold and silver, but I'm talking about the things that we worship here in this country. People worship all kinds of things. We just don't call them gods, but they are gods. 
because we invest all of our time, talent, and treasure into worshiping something. And if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, then chances are it is something else. It could be fishing. It could be surfing. It could be cars. It could be boats. It certainly is alcohol, drugs, sex, sports, all kinds of things get worshipped in this country. And people say, don't mess with that. You know, you can, you can talk to me about anything, but, you know, don't mess with Sunday night football. You know, it's like they, they go in, they have their little altar. They put their cheese hat on and they begin to worship. Oh, and you see them in the stadiums, amen? Don't tell me that's not worship, what they're doing. Those people are insane. I wish they had that much devotion to God, Amen. Stand up there, make a complete idiot out of yourself. You know, you paint your whole body blue and put a yellow C on it. Go Chargers or whatever. I used to do that. I am sick. No, but we, you know, you do. What are you investing your time, your talent, and your treasure into? And in this case, it was not the Lord. Charles Spurgeon used to say, the devil never kicks a dead horse. You know, the enemy only comes after live horses, after people that are doing something for the kingdom. The Jewish opposition forced Paul to leave Thessalonica and Berea, but in Corinth, uh, he he was going to just stay put and get it done. I think he kind of got tired. You know what? These guys have come. I've seen them before. I've heard what they've had to say. I'm sticking it out. I'm just going to stay here. And I believe that is the result of the powerful letters that he writes from this city. I, I think as he as he ponders these things in his heart, he's just all the more steeled in his conviction and the things that God's spoken to him. Uh, it, it, you know, it, almost like if, if you remember your history from your junior high days, you remember Christopher Columbus's famous sail, Today we sailed out. That's all he said. That was his final words as he left Spain. Today we sailed out. He didn't know where he was going. Didn't have a map. There was, you know, it was like that the world at that time everybody thought was flat. They thought he was going to go out and just right off the edge. He just went for it. Paul's the same way here. He says, you know what? I'm just going to keep on keeping on. I got some guys here that I can hang out with. And it, it's just so amazing when the Lord begins to do that kind of work in people's lives. You know, to walk by faith and not by sight is easy when there's not opposition. But when there's opposition, all of a sudden that faith really gets tested, doesn't it? You know, if somebody say they have faith, you know, everything's going well, and, you know, you haven't really faced any kind of opposition, your faith hasn't cost you much. Eventually your faith is going to cost you something. And if it doesn't, I, I would actually begin to question whether that faith is very strong, and, and it's probably not needing to be tested uh, would be a, one way to look at it. And I'm not necessarily saying everybody has to go through dire straits, but I am telling you that if you're doing much for the Lord, eventually your faith is going to get tested. Uh, mine has been tested over and over. It still gets tested. I still run across things. It's like, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this? I've been serving you for a long time. Couldn't we just skip this part? You know, I, don't I have an exemption someplace from opposition? I, I often wonder what the Apostle Paul actually thought in some of his quiet moments with the Lord like I have every once in a while. You know, I'm sure you guys probably have the same thing to where you're just sitting on a rock someplace or just walking down the road and that still small voice that, you know, I'm not telling you that God speaks to me in an audible voice. 
Hello, Jeff, it's me. Not like that. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. When God speaks to you in that quietness of your heart, you're just like, I have what coming? I don't want that. I don't want to go through any more problems. I don't want you to test me anymore. In that. Well, you need to. I don't want to. We have those arguments with God. Paul didn't close his eyes to the dangers or the difficulties or the situation in Corinth. He simply believed that God was bigger than all those things. And sometimes, folks, that's all you've got to hang your hat on. People will say, well, what's, you know, what's the secret to success in ministry? You know, when you've been in ministry for a while, especially when you're in a rather public position like I am, people will, you know, you've been here a long time at the camp. You know, what's the secret? A big God. That's it. That's, a, that's the secret. A really big God that's bigger than all the problems and all the personnel things and all the junk that goes on in the world and the road closures and the fires and everything else. God's bigger than all that. But you know what? I don't have any signed card from God that says, I'm going to deliver you out of everything that ever happens. I remember during the, the last fire, Greg and I were at the camp, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going, you know, the fire is actually burning all the way around this entire facility. And, you know, is this really worth my life being here? And I just got this weird piece. It's, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I got it under control. Now, did I have that fire under control? Are you kidding me? We had walls of flames 100 feet high at the camp. We're, we're standing there watching. Well, that's kind of cool. Trees are dead, but it's kind of cool looking. Who's going to put that out? Wasn't going to be us, you know, standing there with an inch and a half hose off of a hydrant that'll squirt a hundred feet, like wall of flame. I think we're going to die. No, you have faith in something that's a whole lot bigger than you. If God can't take care of things like that, then how's He governing the universe? How's He take care of anything? He's more than able. We are more than conquerors. We're going to go through those times of difficulty and those times of danger. I don't know that there is an easy place to serve the Lord. If anybody ever finds one, I'd like to know what it is and where it is. I, I just want to see it once because I don't know of a place. You know, people, and same thing applies. You know, They look at your life. They look at my life. Maybe they come to the camp. I have people all the time. They walk into the office and on arrival day. It must be great to work here. You must be crazy. No, it, everything has its problems. Everything has its difficulties. You could say the same thing about the person who's retired. I've bumped into people. Yeah, I, I haven't worked in 20 years, but I hate my life. I like to just try. You know, I like switch spots. I don't know. No, but it, it's everything. If you're walking with the Lord, you're going to have persecution. You're going to have trials. You're going to have difficulties. They're going to come in all kinds of flavors. As Francis Bacon said, he said, prosperity is a blessing of the Old Testament and the adversity of the new. You know, sometimes blessings are actually adversity to us because they kind of keep us from seeing the hand of the Lord. I think it's part of the problem with our country in general. We've been blessed for so long, we forgot what it's like to go through difficulty. We, we sit around and we're, you know, we're, oh man, you know, the mean income's down to below $40,000 a year in this country. That's like $10,000 higher than anywhere else on the face of the earth. You know, we're, oh, I don't know how I'm going to make it. 
We could go through our closets. We have enough clothes probably in every house to clothe two or three families. We have enough food to last us for who knows how long. We're blessed. Sometimes those things get in the way. Paul's going to now get a word of assurance from the Lord. Pick up in verse 9, if you would. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And this is what I was getting at. People ask, well, does God, I've been asked, I don't know how many times, does God speak to you? And I will tell them, yes. And sometimes people look at me like, we probably need to call somebody for you. And then we, I have the people that's like, really? You know, what does he say? And then you have the people, what does he sound like? And then you have the other people who are like, oh, I know exactly what you're saying. And the Lord begins to speak. You just know it's God talking to you. I know that I know that I know that that's the voice of the Lord. And it happens on a relatively regular basis. It's not audible. It isn't something I wander around and, you know, it comes out of the sky or out of the heavens. It, in my mind, in my heart's heart, uh, God is at work speaking. And so Paul receives a vision at night. Uh, and sometimes, yes, it is when I'm asleep. Do not be afraid. Speak. And do not keep, can you imagine getting that message in a city like Corinth, which would be like a city like maybe Las Vegas or Amsterdam or some place to where a vast majority of people are tied into some industry that is in direct opposition to the things of the Lord? Do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. He's reminding me, you know, how, no matter how grim it looks, God actually does still have it under control. He's got his plans and his purposes. When people say, you know, well, you know, I might get killed, that's possible. And that's, that is a, it is a, a possibility from the standpoint of our human understanding of that situation. But it's been appointed unto man one time to die. Scripture declares that, that after that will be judgment. God knows exactly when that is. And you're not that important that you're going to bring it any sooner than he wants it to. He's not worried about those types of things. I'm not suggesting that everyone should throw caution to the wind. Okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to walk into a hail of bullets and God will protect me. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying when you have done what you need to do, when you have done what you should do, when you have done what's prudent, you can absolutely trust the Lord to have the rest of it under control. God doesn't take away your brain. He doesn't take away prudence. He doesn't take away wisdom. He doesn't take away the responsibility that you have to do the right thing. A young man once asked me at the Bible college, he says, well, you mean I could go jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and God would save me? I said, no, you'd splat like a fish. And he said, but I have faith. I said, yeah, but your faith is blind. That's not faith in God. That's faith in faith. And he's like, oh, I thought you could, you know, use anything you ask in the name of the Lord. I said, yeah, if it's the Lord's will, I think God's calling you to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. you got to be careful. Make sure that you don't take these passages and apply them personally when God was speaking to a man who would write a third of the New Testament. And he continued there for a year and six months. So this is the longest period of time that he would stay in any city that we find recorded in the New Testament, teaching the word of God among them. And so he was there for a very long time in a very, very, very uh, difficult situation. And in verse 12, when 
And Galilee was the proconsul of Acacia, which the capital city of Acacia, the province of Acacia, was Corinth. So he's in the capital city. The Jews, with one accord and saying, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So remember who else this was said about? This is exactly what they accused Jesus of doing the same thing. And so Paul's being accused that it's contrary to the law, the way he's speaking. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to those Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crime, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it's as a question of words and names in your own law, look to yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge in such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. And then all the Greek took so- Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. And so he says very much the same thing that Pontius Pilate said to Jesus. I find no fault with this man. There's no problem here. He's doing this is a religious matter. This is something I don't want to have anything to do with. You guys do whatever you want. And because the ruler of the synagogue was given Paul a place to, to preach this stuff, they beat him instead. And so very often when, when you preach the word of God with authority, uh, you're going you're gonna to stir up people's crowds. They're going to get upset with you. And so here this important Jewish leader opens up all kinds of opportunities for evangelism. And people are coming to Christ. And no doubt the Jewish community in Corinth was furious at the way Paul was handling this situation and all of these successes. We don't get a lot of details here. Uh, but I do believe that probably between verse 8 and verse 9, uh, this situation probably became very, very, very dangerous. And so Paul was constantly at, at some type of fear, likely for his well-being. Uh, maybe he was thinking about leaving the city, but the Lord speaks to him and he says, he says to what he said, the exact same thing he said to Isaiah. One of the most beautiful passages of comfort in the entire Bible. If you ever get in that situation, read Isaiah 41. Verse 10 there, it says, Fear not, for I am with you, or be dismayed, for I am your God, personal your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. In other words, God's there in the midst of all these things, even when you don't see him. Even when you've had a car accident, when you've got something that you're going through at the doctor's office or the hospital, when those things fall upon you, God's in some ways counted you worthy to suffer that thing, knowing that ultimately he has it under control. He's allowed those things in your life for a purpose, for a plan. Doesn't mean those things feel good. It doesn't mean that you can walk out and go, wow, that was just awesome. You know, I just got run over. That isn't what this is saying at all. But it is saying that God does have it under control. He actually has a plan to use those things ultimately, in your life at least, for the good. Verse 11 there in Isaiah 41, Behold, for all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced, and they shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you will perish. Ultimately, God is the vindicator of the righteous. He's the one that all things ultimately come to his table eventually. And he's looking at these Jewish religious leaders and the pro-council of Acacia, and he's saying, you know what, ultimately, these guys don't have any power. What power they do have, I gave to them. And so let them do their thing. You know, they can keep spewing all these things against you. But, you know, when you feel alone or you feel defeated or things aren't going your way, 
Uh, man, these passages, uh, Isaiah 43 is much the same thing. These fear not passages where God is, God is in control of your life. Ultimately, no one thwarts God's plans. Now, we may not understand God's plans. And that's especially true when, when perhaps the death of a child. I don't think anybody on this earth understands that. Or, or if we lose a spouse or a, a loved one, we don't understand those things from a human perspective. But when we get to heaven, we're going to see what God was doing, why he allowed that, all those things that we don't have answers to. And you're going to find out the whole time that God was with you. God is in the midst of it. And it's up to us to lay hold of that truth. Uh, the Lord Jesus had already appeared back in chapter 9. He appeared to Paul, so he understood he's going to uh, reappear in Acts chapter 22. And so as Paul is being ministered to, the Lord's angel comes to him, is going to give him a word of assurance right before we close this book. He, he, he continues to speak to Paul throughout his lifetime. I'm with you. I have this under control. And for us, family of God, we need to remember that. You know, I'm pretty quick to forget myself sometimes. I was like, oh, Lord, what? You know, we all grumble and complain. It's like, Lord, I can't believe you let this happen to me. I think, I think the better solution to that is understanding why should it not happen to us? I mean, the last time I looked, I'm not exempt from the things that God would allow anywhere in the world. And I look at the world and realize how blessed we are. I'm going like, Lord, why don't you let more bad things happen to me? I think is a, is a better way to look at it. Church was not made up of mostly noble or righteous people, but sinners whose lives have been transformed by the blood of Christ. They were, they were recipients of the grace of God. And they should have been thankful in those situations, and so should we. And so Paul is divinely protected. And being a Roman citizen, Paul was prepared, no doubt, to defend himself, and he could have done that. As a citizen of Rome, remember the whole world at this time, at least the known world, was largely Roman, and so he was very protected under the laws of Rome. There wasn't a thing that anyone could have done to him. He could have just simply said, I'm a Roman citizen, try me before a Roman council. You, you can't do this. No, that's the highest law in the land, but he didn't do that. The real issue was not the application of Roman law, but the interpretation of the Jewish religion, and this proconsul was not going to get involved in that particular thing. So even though this was a flagrant display, if you will, uh, of anti-Semitism, uh, even, even the Jewish people are kind of looking the other way. They don't know what to do with it. That's the beauty of telling the truth, because God's your defense. And all of a sudden, it just works out. Uh, we've had a number of people in this church that have been, you know, they're, you're getting in trouble at their work. Maybe they've had their Bible on the desk, or they've been sharing Christ with somebody at lunchtime, which, by the way, is perfectly legal. Nobody can tell you you cannot share Jesus with somebody at your workplace. That is illegal in this country. It's protected First Amendment speech. There's a lot of people going, well, you know, you can't do that here. Yes, you can. And you can do that in school. And you can wear the same. If, if somebody can wear a, some disgusting slogan on there, you better believe you can wear one that says, I love Jesus. Somebody tells you you can't. They're applying a law that does not imply that from a constitutional standpoint. And Paul understood that. God had his back. There was a higher law on the land, and ultimately every one of these guys were going to answer to it. And so he had great boldness because of it. How strange, how wonderful uh, it is that God works these things out. Verse 18 goes on here. 
And he's going to now begin to strive to do the, the will of the Lord. And, you know, sometimes we just have to leave it this way, folks. There are a lot of things I want to do. Uh, this last year has been kind of weird with uh, the way things have been going for, in our facility down in Brazil. And I would love to go down, and hopefully those things are going to happen. But I have to say, Lord willing, notice what Paul says here. And so Paul remained still a good while. And then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Centuria. He probably had taken a Nazarite vow. And as he completes that, the hair would be, would be shaved off. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there. And he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a little longer, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, um, By all means, I must keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. And so he was preparing to go and finish that vow he had made before the Lord. But I will return to you, God willing. In other words, Lord, if it's your will, I'm coming back. If it's not your will, I'm not coming back. And he sailed on uh, from Ephesus. And so, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And so, again, you can see he's staying in the same basic geographic region. He's traveling uh, great distances, 175 miles in this particular case. And while he's there, he begins to notice that there's all of these people that are being ministered to, and he can't be everywhere at once. You know, one of the, one of the great problems that anyone has in ministry, if you've been in ministry for very long, is there are a lot of people who know you. There are a lot of people whom you have invested in their lives. There are all kinds of people who would like two minutes of your time. Uh, it, it just it goes with the territory. And eventually, you have to say, Lord willing. I used to get really upset. Now, I'll just share a little story with you because I think it's important and it illustrates this point. You know, every year, you know, Connie makes these Christmas cards. And every once in a while, if I'm feeling really... You know, I'm in touch with my feminine side. I will help. I'll like glue on bows or whatever. But they're her deal, okay? She designs them, and I get maybe to cut a corner or something. I don't know. But we send these cards out, and they they take time. And I've had person now, I didn't get one of your cards. And then I started thinking about, it. I've sent Pastor Chuck Christmas cards for 20 years, and I've never gotten one from him. And I started thinking about it for a second. He'd have to send out like 40 million Christmas cards if he sent one to everyone whose life he had crossed with or worked in minute. I mean, literally, it probably would be millions of people. Eventually, you have to realize that it's the Lord that builds those bridges. It's the Lord that keeps us all together. I'm not the one responsible for all of those little intricacies. I can only be in one place at one time. I can only minister to one person at one time. I cannot be in everywhere. So I have to say, Lord willing. You have to say, Lord willing. And a lot of times that comes when you see your children off to college. That comes when you've done your part and you just have to say, you know, Lord, I, I just got to commit it into your hand. We have to learn to trust the Lord, folks, that God's got those things under control. You can't take care of everything. You can't even take care of everything in your own life, much less your children's lives and then their children's children's lives. And ultimately, you, you see how quickly it would get out of hand. And so Paul gives us a little picture here, having invested in all these cities, and he's kind of traveling back around to them. And he says, you know, I'd love to come see you, but 
Only if God wills. God's going to have to make it happen. More than a religious slogan, I think it's one of the strengths of Paul's life. That he understood that, that he wasn't the end. That he was just a tool in the hand of the Lord. He was something, someone that God could use. Now, sometimes the Apostle Paul identified himself as such, and sometimes he didn't. But in all cases, he identified who his Lord was. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we, we find Paul writing about who he was, occasionally. But he always told everybody who Jesus was. And he always told everybody who his Lord was. And he always left those things in the hands of the Lord. When we make relationships, the best thing that we can do is base them in the Lord. So if that relationship on this earth should be parted and you never see that person again, the most important thing that you could have shared with them is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Their Lord, your Lord, my Lord, our Lord. And if the Lord wills, then God will put those things together. You know, there are all kinds of things that that we, in essence, could invest our time and talent into, our treasure into. But we need to be looking for what God wants us to do. And he may call you away from some of those things that you really want to do and have you go do some of those things that maybe you don't want to do because that really is his will. We need to be looking for what the Lord wants. Centuria was a seaport for Corinth. Basically, it was part of Corinth, if you will. And uh, there was a Christian congregation there. We know that from Romans chapter 16. And um, Paul was, in essence, kind of going uh, from there. And he, it looks like he was heading back to Jerusalem to, to complete the Nazarite vow, no doubt to go there to celebrate that feast. And so uh, as he does that, uh, Paul was basically saying, you know what, Lord, this has just gotten too much for me. You need to really guide and direct my steps. I, I need to know where you want me to go because I want to go complete this vow, but I want to see the people here. I want to stay with the people in Corinth. He's thinking about the people in Thessalonica. I have the same thing. You know, there's George and Itzu were here, and, and Christian was here from, uh, now he's in Norway. We met him in Austria. I think about it, and I was like, Lord, well, I should go see them. And, you know, sometimes when I travel, it's like if I stop by everybody's house, um, I don't even know what I would be doing. It'd just be weird. You know, I fly down to Brazil and I land and there's 10 families in the airport. So I go, oh, could you come over to here? You know, I, I can't go do all this. Lord, you got to tell me where you got want me to go. You need to help me here. We need to leave those things in the hands of the Lord. It's a great reminder that God does have it under control. What we're going to see, there's some extra excitement that goes on because um, we get a crazy things going to happen here in Ephesus, and that's the next city that he's going to. Now, Ephesus is also a very large city, multiple hundreds of thousands of people. That was the home of the Temple of Diana. To give you an idea of how large that temple is, 418 feet long, about 239 feet wide, uh, probably in a neighborhood of 60 to 70 feet tall. This thing was huge. I mean, we are talking a stadium, a sports arena-sized building in the old world, and it's out on top of the hill. Uh, it, it was the sacred image of Diana that was in the middle of that, which was probably a meteorite. It was one of the most famous places of worship in the ancient world. And this is where Paul's ministering. He's at Corinth. He's at Athens. He's at Ephesus. These are all the centers of the religion of the day. In other words, he went to the enemy's camp. It's just like, I'm going to go, okay, there's a cult. Of, I'll go deal with that one. And those people believe something else is false. I'll go deal with that one. 
And so God had literally taken him to where these small Jewish communities had been built up over time that were in the center of the pagan world. And he had enough boldness to keep preaching the truth to those people. Incredible boldness on the part of Paul. Um, Paul would spend also uh, about three years in Ephesus. And so he's, he probably total spent about four years or so in Corinth, a little over three years in Ephesus. Most of the writing that he did was done in those two cities. Uh, and so here we find, picking up in verse 23, uh, a guy that just, he's got kind of part of a message, but it isn't quite there yet, and Paul's going to help him kind of finish off his story. Verse 23, and after he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia, to Phrygia, in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he's kind of spending some time going back through, he's planted churches, he's seen people come to Christ, he's left leadership, and now he's going back through and doing what a really good pastor does, and that's checking up on the sheep making sure they're doing okay, discipling, ministering to them, finding out where they are in the Lord. And so a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, so in modern-day Egypt, an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus, and this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, he took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So it's kind of cool because here you have a guy who got a kind of an incomplete message of who Jesus is and kind of the work of the Spirit. And so these two people that are traveling with Paul that are now hearing the straight gospel message are being taught well. They're able to come alongside somebody who's got a little bit of a doctrinal difficulty and they begin to squirm away. So you know, that's not quite it, because the baptism of John wasn't for salvation. And yet that's what they thought it was. It's just like, well, we go get baptized with John, we'll be fine. It was almost like the Old Testament vision of salvation, which was by faith, but it wasn't in the Jesus Christ. It was in the hope that the Messiah would come. And so it was kind of incomplete. And so was the baptism of John in- incomplete without Christ. You remember, John actually said that. He, he said, no, there is a one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to even tie, and it's him you shall believe. It's him you shall follow. And so this guy kind of had his doctrine a little bit messed up. And so when they desired to cross Acacia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed in the gospel through grace and he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And so here he departs uh, from uh, Ephesus, heading for Jerusalem. He's got his friends with him to carry on that witness. And uh, they bump into this guy who's a Jewish teacher named Apollos. And, and he has kind of a, a little bit of messed up doctrine. And so uh, Alexandria ended up with the, one of the largest uh, universities and the largest volumes of written works in the old world. The population of Alexandria may have been over a half million of people at the time. Uh, that library there was said to contain over 700,000 volumes. So this was the, probably the greatest library in the known world at the time. So this was, again, a seat of very well-learned people. And Apollos knew the Old Testament scriptures, but he had, because of that, an incomplete message of the gospel of grace. And so uh, he didn't know about Calvary. He didn't know about the resurrection of the Lord. He certainly didn't know about the Holy Spirit that had come upon the disciples at Pentecost. And so uh, they help him with his doctrine. 
Uh, it's interesting because the the word that's used uh, to disciple or come along to be a disciple is also the word uh, instructed. It's actually the same word from which the English word uh, catechism comes from. In other words, to a systematic study of something. And a systematic study of the gospel will bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so they brought him to that New Testament uh, understanding. You can kind of look at it this way. From an Old Testament perspective, you actually could come to sufficient faith to believe. That's what you had with Abraham and with David and all of those Old Testament saints that you're one day going to see in heaven. But you didn't have the whole message because Jesus Christ hadn't died and paid for the sins of the world yet. There was still part of it that was missing, but there was enough of it to get you going the right direction. Here's how this works. Most of us now, when you buy a new car, it comes with a GPS in it, right? But they give you the old funky disc that came with it when you got the car. So like in ours, we have a 2007 disc. So the 2007 disc in our 2007 car, it's now 2011. Uh, There's been a few freeways finished here in Southern California in that time. So when you're heading out the 210 on our GPS, you get out to about Muscoy, and you're driving in a field. And you're just like... Oh, we're on, it must be a dirt road. But you're still on the freeway, right? You're still going the right direction. You understand exactly where you're supposed to be going, but you don't quite know the address because when you look at the GPS screen, you're out in the middle of nowhere. That's kind of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was going the right direction. It was pointing exactly where it was supposed to go. If you keep following that road, even though it doesn't show up on the current map that you have, which is the Old Testament, it actually is going to end with the blood of Jesus Christ being shed on Calvary's cross. It's the same thing with Apollos. Apollos had studied the Old Testament. He certainly read the book of Isaiah. He understood that this Messiah who would come would die for the sins of the world. He understood fully that the chastisement of the peace of all of mankind would be heaped upon the the coming Messiah. So he knew where the road was going. He just didn't know how to get there yet because it hadn't been fully mapped out when he got his GPS disc. His GPS disc was a little bit old. And so here comes Aquila and Priscilla and Paul as they come on the scene and go, here's a new disc. And it's got the whole map on it. It tells you all you need to know, because Jesus Christ actually did come. That Messiah of the Old Testament, he's already been here. I'm a Pharisee. I've shared with these guys. These guys are also Jews. We studied the same Old Testament you did. We came to believe that the Messiah would come. Guess what? He's already been here. Those prophecies that Zechariah put forth that said, you know, that not a bone of his would be broken. David saying, You know, what manner of death he would have on the cross. All of those things, they actually happened. So we know it's him. So they now were able to tell him the full story. So they took him home on a Sabbath, uh, ate dinner with him, and ministered to him. And unfortunately, as we begin chapter 19, um, we kind of start the next chapter with uh, some more messed up doctrine. You know, some guys were focused in on the things of the Spirit a little bit too much. And again, that's, that's the beautiful teaching uh, that, that happens when you get the whole counsel of the Word of God, when you don't skip parts of it. One of the wonderful things that I love so dearly about being a Calvary Chapel pastor is that we believe you need to teach the whole Bible. And it doesn't do you a whole lot of good to just pick out your favorite book. I mean, quite honestly, I could take the Gospel of John and teach the rest of my life and never do it justice. 
But by the same token, I would miss so much of what God has to say by not utilizing the rest of what the Lord has revealed in his word. And so Apollos has that happen. We're going to see some guys next time as we gather together uh, that need a little help squaring away their doctrine as well. And so God is faithful. Uh, He is able to deliver us out of each circumstance and situation and prepare us for the next one. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful. Lord, I'm thankful for the Priscilla's and Aquila's in my life, Lord, people that have come alongside of me, men and women both, Lord, to encourage and strengthen, to correct, uh, exhort, Lord, to admonish, uh, Lord, to square away those things. And we pray that as we come upon adversity, God, that it will not deter us, but rather strengthen us, steal our resolve, Lord, to speak your name until you come for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the precious privilege of being your kids, Lord, for the amazing grace that you shed upon us. And pray, Lord, that you would just continue to use us for your glory, Lord. Raise up gifts from within this church, Lord. Send people out from here. Lord, do great and mighty things with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, family, be very safe going home, because if it was wet when you left, it's no doubt ice now. I'm supposed to get down to maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of five tonight. Um, That's cold.